Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the DNS Podcast. Our guest today is Registered Dietitian Nutritionist, Dr. Katie Price. Dr. Price currently serves as Clinical Assistant Professor and Director of the Didactic Program in Dietetics at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Appalachian State University, Master of Science degree from the University of Minnesota, and a doctoral degree also from the University of Minnesota, where she wrote her dissertation on lean tissue assessment and protein recommendations in clinical populations. Her research has focused on a variety of clinical nutrition topics, including body composition after pediatric liver transplant, muscle assessment using CT of cardiac transplant patients, sarcopenia, and much more. In addition to academia, Katie also works as an outpatient clinical dietitian and nutrition supervisor for Cherokee Health Systems, where she provides evidence-based, client-centered clinical nutrition care to diverse clients across the lifespan. In 2021, Katie won Best of Aspen Award for her poster entitled Evaluation of a Multi-Step Feeding Protocol in Stable Isotope Amino Acid Tracers to Determine Anabolic Threshold and Capacity in Patients with Head and Neck Cancer on Concurrent Chemoradiation Therapy. Katie, congratulations on winning this award, and thank you so much for joining us on the DNS podcast. Thank you, Christina. I am thrilled to be here. So Katie, what inspired you to study amino acid synthesis in head and neck patients? So the classical clinical presentation of head and neck cancer involves malnutrition, cancer cachexia, and notable muscle loss related to the location of the tumor as well as the treatment. So in many cases for this population, it's simply not possible to get enough nutrition by mouth to meet your needs. And the nutrition care plan, depending on the location, staging, treatment, and prognosis, generally involves the placement of a gastric tube with eventual reliance for most of your calories and protein from nutrition support. So what's really interesting is that even in these more controlled scenarios with perhaps a prophylactic gastric tube placement, and maybe a high compliance with nutrition support regimen, we actually still see muscle wasting and weakness associated with this condition. So this ultimately leads us to two questions. The first is, well, how do we determine how much protein is really enough for this population? And additionally, when we do give protein, does this population in particular have some kind of decreased ability to mount an anabolic response. So in other words, we're wondering, is there some kind of anabolic resistance such that the patient actually might get enough protein, but perhaps has a decreased response to the increased amino acids as compared to um, other folks who don't have head and neck cancer? So 
the answers to these two questions can ultimately support our ability to prevent or treat malnutrition, cancer cachexia, and muscle wasting to improve clinical outcomes for this critical population. In addition to that, the data we do have on protein requirements has known flaws. So it's ultimately completely based on nitrogen balance study data. And you know, nitrogen input into the body is usually overestimated and nitrogen output is usually underestimated. So the idea is, is sort of there's this endemic underestimating of the amount of protein probably required for anabolism. And this would be particularly true in clinical populations where we're, you know, nitrogen loss may be much more substantial. So stable isotope amino acid tracers, which is the methodology we use to look at protein kinetics in head and neck cancer patients is a tool that allows us to actually trace the endogenous protein turnover. So in, in, a, in a particular patient, we can actually envision what's happening with protein synthesis and protein breakdown in that human. Um, and this technique can help provide very important insight into, of course, protein kinetics, but then eventually amino acid requirements in clinical populations. So our colleagues at Texas A&M have used this technique and they've streamlined a protocol in other populations that have wasting in their clinical in their classic clinical presentation, such as patients with COPD. So with their collaboration, we ran a feasibility trial that is the first study we know of to utilize this technique, the stable isotope amino acid tracer technique to trace endogenous protein turnover in head and neck cancer patients who are also undergoing concurrent chemo radiation therapy. So as mentioned before, this patient population is highly impacted by malnutrition and muscle loss. So first we're asking in our trial, can this be done? As this population is certainly difficult to reach related both to the severity of their illness and the general busyness of their treatment schedule. So consenting for research and working within their schedule is not easy. And from the work we've done, we've ultimately determined, yes, this is feasible. This, this type of technique is possible um, in this population. So now larger trials using this technique in patients with head and neck cancer can help us gain more insight into the important questions I mentioned before, which are how much protein is enough and do these patients experience anabolic resistance related to their disease and treatment? So tell us about the protocol from the, the side of the patient. You know, what was it like for these patients who did enroll in the study? Absolutely. So our feeding protocol involves a enteral and an IV component. And the enteral component can be given by mouth or it can be given through the gastric tube. And all of our patients actually had a gastric tube in place for feeding. So that is how uh, all of our patients were given the gastric component, uh, the enteral component of the feeding. And the protocol itself takes place over six hours. 
So it starts with an overnight fast. And the first two hours of the protocol are also fasted. So likely the biggest discomfort for the patient could be hunger, uh, along with there are some blood draws where we gain that information on protein kinetics. So that's ultimately what we're measuring is the amino acids in the blood. So there are blood draws involved. To promote their comfort, we tried to get started first thing in the morning, as soon as the patients told us, you know, this is my routine and this is the time I'm up for the day. We tried to start our protocol right away um, just to keep them comfortable. Additionally, many patients already have the central line in place related to their chemotherapy uh, treatment. So that's where the IV amino acids were provided. So there really isn't any, any further discomfort related to that component of the, of the protocol. And so the main amino acid we are tracing to provide information on, on protein kinetics in the body is phenylalanine because it, it only has two fates. So phenylalanine is either synthesized into protein or it's degraded by hydroxylation and tyrosine. So if we also measure tyrosine, we know quite a lot about protein synthesis and protein breakdown just in measuring these two amino acids. So in our feeding, in this protocol, we provided two different types of phenylalanine so that we can differentiate ingested from endogenous amino acids. And then we also gave it as a whole protein form. So instead of just a broken down amino acid, we also gave a whole protein form actually in the form of spirulina, which gives us information about the patient's digestion capacity. And the final component of the feeding protocol was actually isoleucine, which was provided to give us information about absorption capacity. So we chose a totally different amino acid uh, to trace to give us information about absorption. So at the protocol start, we give a primer and then we start the IV that runs continuously for the six hour protocol. And in the fasted stage, which is the first two hours, we only give the isoleucine and water enterally. So that um, can be a little bit bitter. So it's, it's uh, just isoleucine and water mixture. So it's preferable to give it by peg. And again, that's how we we gave it to our patients, but it truly is a very small sip. So if it, if it needed to be taken PO, that would be okay too. And uh, the final four hours involve a two-step increase in protein by mixing our tracers, our amino acid tracers with boost. So again, this could be PO or enteral, and the boost taste predominates over the spirulina and the added amino acid. So it truly just tastes like boost. And so we give this every 20 minutes, again, small sips over the total remaining four hours. And it's, it's mimicking a continuous feeding regimen. So the patient ultimately endures an IV running and quite a few small sips, you know, either by mouth or enterally. Um, of several small feedings, along with some blood draws to assess protein kinetics at specific time points. All of this to say, you know, we have to keep in mind that this population can be extremely ill. So 
this certainly played into the discussion of feasibility. So, you know, the, the ethics involved in the research, um, is any discomfort worth, uh, you know, the protocol? And ultimately we've determined that, that it is, and it is a, a limited discomfort. In addition, I had the privilege of working with patients at the VA and these patients each truly had an extremely positive attitude and were very devoted to participation in research. So I can honestly say I never heard a single complaint about our protocol, but I do think we had a very uh, devoted population. And how often did the patients have to come in for the feeding protocol? Yes, uh, ideally, we were hoping to get more of a baseline protein requirement, uh, or, or I guess, um, stable isotope amino acid tracer measurement. So right at the beginning, hopefully, of their chemo RADS uh, regimen. So, so for most patients, that was around one, the first week of treatment or the second week of treatment. And then generally the treatment lasts about six to seven weeks. So our aim was then to get kind of an endpoint, end of treatment, and ultimately be able to compare them. Um, in reality, really related to COVID-19 and a few other challenges, for most patients, we were able to get only one measurement. Um, so, so for all of the patients mentioned here, we really had one, one data point. And was there any pushback from the oncologist regarding using these, the chemotherapy central line for the amino acid infusion? No, actually, um, we were very well supported by our oncologist who also worked with uh, our, our collaborators at Texas A&M really involved in the discussion of how best to trace the amino acid endogenously. And we never had any pushback uh, related to that. Of course, we were very mindful of the patient's scheduled treatment and avoiding any kind of conflict with that. Was there anything particularly surprising about your study results? We did conclude that the protocol is feasible in patients with head and neck cancer, though I have to be honest that in the end, it was not easy. So it's, it's feasible, it's, it's possible to be done, but it's certainly not easy. So working in the inpatient setting has its challenges, as you can imagine, when hosting a long study day. And we also had to coordinate with other clinicians attempting to see the patient, as well as necessary scheduled procedures, obviously their, their chemo and radiation procedures. And we also had some difficulty with keeping our line for blood draws. Their veins could be a bit tricky depending on the age of the patient, the other conditions of the patient. And we really had to rely on the nursing staff to assist us with, with keeping these lines. And their availability didn't always line up perfectly with our study timing of exactly when we needed the draw. So this is not certainly not a routine procedure to run on everyone with head and neck cancer, but it ultimately is feasible 
for a planned larger trial to help us gain critical information about protein kinetics in the population. Another component of feasibility that we showed that was ultimately just that the protocol worked well. So we got meaningful data on each participant, but I have to remind you that um, it's not enough data yet to extrapolate to patients with head and neck cancer as a whole, but just for educational purposes, if we, if we could extrapolate, our data currently corroborates well with what others who have taken on this work have seen in other cancer populations. So it's essentially showing that the ability to mount an anabolic response in the face of an additional exogenous amino acids is actually not impaired in this population. So our data, again, you know, very few patients, more feasibility type data, but it does line up well with, with what we're seeing with other data and that they aren't experiencing the anabolic resistance that we might expect. So that would be, you know, related to inflammation, bed rest, aging, none of those same things seem to be impairing their ability to actually respond anabolically to additional amino acids. So that was, that's surprising ultimately. Um, so this data from, from our study and also from larger trials in cancer populations is telling us that if you provide amino acids, patients with cancer will build proteins similarly to healthy controls. So the question has become then, where is this protein going? Because it apparently is going elsewhere beyond replenishing lean mass, as we're still seeing many of these patients continue to undergo uh, muscle wasting, even when given what we might think of as enough protein and total calories. So do you think that we've learned enough from this study to make any bedside applications, either in head and neck or you know, other patient populations? Or, or do we still need to do more trials to, to learn more before we can do that? Ultimately, I do think that there is clinical applicability. Um, we can reinforce the importance of enough protein and enough total energy in this patient population. And the idea that no matter how much we give, the patients are resistant anyway, um, is, is debunked, right? So they're using these, these amino acids that they critically need. And I think that is where we're at so far with this type of data, how much, the, the, how much protein the patients need to replenish their lean mass is still an open question. And of course, very clinically applicable. It really the, the main question, so how much do we give? And it, it, we truly do still need um, longer term study data that involves prospective measurement of muscle mass uh, and strength. So as we determine an amount and give that amount over time, how do we impact the muscle status? So, so th that kind of data is still, still missing.
And what other research projects do you currently have in the works? So I have relocated and I'm currently at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. So my focus, my personal focus has shifted quite a bit. I'm currently working on outcomes-based research and I'm very interested in the barriers dietitians face to collecting patient outcomes in their daily practice. So we are impl implementing a protocol to collect patient outcomes using Andy, which you may know as the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Health Information Infrastructure in our student-run outpatient clinic. So it, it focuses on, our, our outpatient clinic focuses on free nutrition education and counseling to underserved populations in our local community. And we're very excited about training upcoming practitioners. So training graduate students to collect outcomes in practice. We truly feel this is an extremely important effort to our field in order to document that our work can reduce patient costs, improve patient outcomes, and indicate which interventions are the most effective in the actual practice setting. So several other projects are also in the works at this student-run clinic, which is extremely unique in that the healthcare center has an integrative care philosophy. So we collaborate really closely with primary care and behavioral health, and the clientele is largely uninsured. So they are individuals who often don't have access to nutrition care until they have an inpatient admission. So we're, we're meeting them at the, at the preventative level. So we are very excited about several other research opportunities at this setting with exciting collaborations and direct access to underserved, under-researched populations. And before we wrap up today, I, I did wanna chat for just a moment about your dissertation. So in preparing for this podcast recording, I did come across your document and I thought it was super interesting that you had summarized malnutrition going all the way back to the 14th century. So why is it that where we've been talking about malnutrition for literally hundreds of years, and we still haven't quite figured it out yet. This is a fascinating topic, and there truly is no doubt that malnutrition worsens clinical outcomes for many disease states, and treatment of malnutrition and improvement of nutrition status improves clinical outcomes. So depending on the condition, improved clinical outcomes could include improved survival, improve treatment tolerance with less treatment interruptions, improve patient quality of life, lessen length of stay, et cetera. And of course, these are all um, associated with then lessened healthcare cost. So as a medical community, we can agree that malnutrition is imperative to detect and treat in the clinical setting. And this effort is a major role of the clinical dietitian nutritionist so in light of this obvious importance, how amazing is it that we are still in conversation about what clinical malnutrition even is or how best to diagnose it, especially since it is a concept that has been noted in the medical literature, as, as, as you stated, uh, since the 14th century. Importantly, the, the lack of agreement and consensus has also brought about a lot of skepticism and uncertainty surrounding this important concept. 
making it a very urgent topic to address. And you can see throughout history that this, this call to address this problem has been noted repeatedly. Uh, some of the challenge is related to the various etiologies that lead to malnutrition. So you have changes in intake, physical activity, just the natural course of aging, of course, underlying disease and inflammation or any combination of these factors uh, can lead to malnutrition. And efforts to address this issue have led to, of course, the differing criteria to diagnose malnutrition based on the underlying ideology, though this really continues to present challenges to the global concept of malnutrition and certainly hints at its, its complexity. Another challenge is that malnutrition importantly encompasses over and under nutrition, though in the inpatient clinical setting, it's often synonymous with undernutrition. But we also know overnutrition can worsen clinical outcomes in various disease states. For example, there's notable data on worsened outcomes in pediatric obesity in the PICU. So a discussion around malnutrition necessarily requires further clarification between these two poles of nutrition status, which further complicates the concept. Another challenge is related to the overlapping terminology. So we have sarcopenia, cachexia, frailty, that all have unique emphasis, but have significant overlap with malnutrition. And in truth, each of these terms has struggled to produce a clear, internationally accepted definition and diagnosis. So throughout our long history, grappling with clinical malnutrition, we have at least recognized that the definition and diagnosis will require multiple assessment tools and that reliance on a single tool, as we largely did in the 1970s, for example, with albumin, is certainly flawed. So this presents another challenge to the concept of malnutrition and is an important element to actually reaching an international consensus. So the tools that have persisted over time and thus have truly proven their utility include height and weight measurements with the assessment of weight changes and growth, assessment of intake, uh, physical examination. However, these tools in combination are apparently incomplete as there still remains uncertainty. So it is important to note the subjectivity, especially of the physical exam and the difficulty in assessing muscle tissue in so many populations, including older adults, individuals with obesity, and those who are edematous. So our challenge now is most likely to incorporate new tools such as metabolomics and body composition assessment devices alongside these tools that have persisted throughout time to improve our ability to define and diagnose malnutrition. And of course, it's also possible that we may never land on a flawless criteria for diagnosis of clinical malnutrition related to the issues raised earlier such as the differences between over and under nutrition, differing etiologies, and inability of a single assessment tool to accurately detect the condition. But our task then is to constantly improve our ability 
to detect and treat this important medical condition and thus continue to improve outcomes for patients. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today. And again, congratulations on your award from Aspen. Listeners, to learn more and stay on the cutting edge of nutrition support, visit our website at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.